Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Better Questions, Better Life podcast. My name is Dustin Elliott, and on this podcast, I look to answer a simple yet powerful question. How can we ask better questions to live a better life? As always, if this is your first episode, let me welcome you. And for those of you who are regular listeners and subscribers, a nice welcome back. For those of you joining us for the first time, this podcast uh, is really, really simply focused on exploring how we can ask better questions to live a better life, to help us be happier, healthier, and more successful in all those different aspects. This podcast is broken up into two sections. The first part is where I break this question down into smaller bite-sized topics where we can start to look at different strategies, tactics, and approaches to help you ask better questions to live a better life. The second part, which is today's episode and what I'm very excited about, is made up a range of interviews with a variety of professionals who all share one common bond. Their ability to do their jobs largely depends on their ability to ask good questions. So far, we've recorded with qualitative researchers, data scientists, police officers, high-priced consultants, professional interviewers, personal coaches, and a range of other top professionals. And I'm just in the process of booking a whole bunch of people in at the moment, and I've got a, a really, really exciting lineup coming up, and it's continuing to grow. And on that, I want to quickly just put it out there. If you know somebody who you think I should interview, doesn't matter what they do. It really just matters, again, their ability to ask good questions in a really interesting and innovative way. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'll give the website link in a moment and you can uh, contact me there or on any of the social medias. But with that being said, um, if uh, if you like today's episode, uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. Links to everything is always on the Better Questions, Better Life podcast website, and that'll be betterquestionsbetterlife.co. Of course, as always, you can check out more resources on the topic, uh, jump on a mailing list, stay up to date in new episodes, and get a whole range of tips, resources, and um, currently working on a very cool uh, little special free gift for everybody just to help you ask those better questions. As always, I want to take a quick minute and thank the Y2 Podcast, rather, that is the Better Questions, Better Life Podcast, rather, formerly the Y2 Podcast, uh, our sponsor, YZ. YZ is an easy-to-use online training software that makes it so simple to create and deliver online learning. So before you uh, put your staff, your employees, or your people that you're working with through another PowerPoint or another Word document they got to read, make sure you jump over to their website at yz.com. That's W-Y-Z-E-D.com to check out some videos and even get started with your own 14-day free trial. And with that being said, we're about to get into today's episode. Uh, just a really quick note. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking with the wonderful Cheerilee Ryan, or Chi as she likes to be known as. Uh, Chi's interview is absolutely fantastic. She is a human-centered designer working for IDEAN in New York, and she also has her own podcast called This Is HCD. Links uh, will be in the show notes as well, too, so make sure you check it out. But uh, Cheerilee's interview, went a, she was so generous with her time, and went a little longer than I uh, usually like to aim for with these uh, particular episodes. Episodes. So what I decided to do, because I couldn't cut any of it out, it felt like an absolute travesty to remove even a single iota of information from her interview, um, I thought it best to split it up into two uh, interviews. So today is going to be the first part, uh, and uh, the second part will come out next week. So if uh, if you haven't already, make sure you hit that subscribe button, to, uh, to so that way you can get your podcast as soon as it comes out. And of course, as well, too, I really, really encourage you to check out her podcast uh, again at uh, this is HCD, and I'll gonna have links in the show notes. But that being said, let's get right into it and uh, speak to the wonderful Cheerly Ryan. 
Chi, welcome to the YT Podcast. Thank you for having me. That's my absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much. I know you're extremely busy. It's uh, obviously coming from New York and having spent a bit of time in Melbourne. Um, and here we are on a Sunday morning, bright and early. But again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I don't mind at all w- waking up early on a Sunday morning, but I have to work for the rest of the day. So, <laughs> you know, it's not too bad. Fair enough. And I mean, on that, we were obviously just previously discussing a little bit about what you do. You have a a really fascinating career, but at the same time, I kind of know what you do, but at the same time, I've got no idea what you you actually do. So I'd love if you can start off today just to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and even just a quick kind of synopsis of your career and what's brought you to this today. Okay. So I'll start with experience design because that's the thing that most people want me to talk about or explain. Uh, The best way to think about experience design is that everything that is made, whether it is physical, so a chair, a building, a toy, anything really, to something digital, so it could be a piece of software, a website, a mobile application, uh, a device, anything digital or something completely intangible and invisible. So a process, a system, uh, an organization, the way that an organization hangs together. All of these things, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, have experiences attached to them. And experience design for me is about thinking about that experience that people have of the things that we bring into the world. And designing for those experiences because if we don't then we're just leaving it to chance and that's a big chance to to leave open so that's how I would describe experience design in a nutshell to give you an example of what experience design can mean um, and to highlight that it's not something that has been around for a minute It's been around for a long time and people have been recognizing this. Um, One of my favorite examples is uh, from the master of experience design, Walt Disney. Um, So back in, I think it was, I'm going to say it was the late 50s, maybe early 60s, when um, they were about to build Disney World um, in Florida. Walt Disney was at Disneyland in California one day and he was walking through Frontierland, which of course is the kind of, uh, no, sorry, not Frontierland. Sorry. Hang on. Let me start that again. Uh, So he was walking through Tomorrowland and um, he saw a cowboy walking through Tomorrowland on his way to Frontierland and he stopped in his tracks and he thought to himself, this is just isn't right. This is going to interrupt people's experiences. We cannot have a cowboy in the future. <sighs> so when they were designing Disney World, they created the Utilidor system. Now, if you've watched uh, um, Westworld, you would have seen the um, the tunnel systems that they have underneath the the, the park. Um, the Utilidor system is a system of tunnels that – are underneath Disney World and the idea is that the staff all walk through those tunnels rather than interrupting the experience that people are having Mm. on the surface in the park. So that gives you a 
bit of a, a scratch of the surface of what experience design can mean, which is a little scary sometimes to think about that maybe people are out there experience, designing all of these things that we take for granted and we think are just happening and magical on their own, but often they're not. Um, so experience design in itself, I would say, is not necessarily a design discipline like other classical design disciplines, let's say architecture, industrial design, visual design, and so forth. Experience design is more of a mindset that you apply when you're thinking about whatever it is that you're making. And um, you certainly don't have to be a designer to think about the experience that people will have. And there's a few um, ways that you can think about experience that are, are all very neurological and 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 <laughs> and, uh, and psychological. So we can think about experiences in the present. So that would be the experience that you're having right now of listening to this podcast. Uh, and then there's the remembering experience. So um, designing for things that people will remember later on because that's very powerful if you can get someone to remember something and have a kind of signature moment. So you can design for that too. And uh, you can also think about experience in the sense of real experiences. So, for example, um, it might be tools that you use. So you might use your banking app. That's a very real experience because you're dealing with something that matters in your everyday life. Or you might have constructed experiences like the one that I described at Disneyland that is an unreal experience and modern constructed experiences might be things like VR and AR and so forth. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that you can think about experience. And here's the here's the, the one that really usually makes people twig out. You can't design an experience. So you can design for an experience, but you're never going to truly design an experience for someone because everybody experiences the world differently. So that's where you have to start thinking about a kind of average path that people take and then allow for varied experience within that path that people take. So that's essentially, that's essentially a little bit of a, a 411 on, 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 um, on experience design. Um, so how did I get to that? Well, I started out, um, I went to film school, well, technically film, television, radio school, if you want to be precise. Um, and I, I got a job as a junior designer with a creative director in Sydney. And I was only about 15 or 16 at the time um, and um, uh, landed in the world of advertising. It's not really what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was titling for films, but that just didn't kind of work out. Although I did get to learn a lot of, of about typography. Um, my, my first boss, he was, um, he was a master typographer and uh, we worked on really big clients from the start. So um, one of our big clients was Qantas and we created a custom typeface for Qantas. So um, that's kind of where things kicked off. And then I moved around in advertising in Australia and a little bit in London um, very early on. And, and I became what I would describe as a visual designer um, and, and at the time, um, certainly working in advertising, being a creative was what everybody aspired to be. So, of course, I did too because I thought that was what I needed to be. And designers didn't have a very good, not a good reputation, but they, they weren't respected in, in advertising. I, quietly, I'm not sure they 
are now. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a designer at that point. And, uh, and so I, I carried on and, you know, um, went to university and studied marketing and psychology because I thought that would be really interesting string to add to my bow. And then I, I you know, on my pursuit of being a creative, I did all of the, the, the industry standard courses to be a creative, so award school, ad school, um, DMCS, um, direct marketing creative school. Um, and, and yet uh, I still wasn't really able to crack it as a creative, um, you know, and, and by creative in that space, I mean a writer or an art director. Um, and um, and uh, that was very frustrating and it wasn't until much later that I realised why, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So anyway, about 2006, 2007, I found myself at a really interesting company um, in Sydney where we had, we had three teams. We had a creative team, which I led. We had a development team, which was all um, digital developers. And, and, and uh, we had an, in, an industrial design team. And the types of things that we made were things like concepts for ATM machines or um, digital vending machines or um, moving into more interesting spaces, making things like wayfinding systems for airports um, and, and really bespoke digital. Um, and it was right around the time, the same time that, that iPhone, the first iPhone came out. And I remember the day that it did because we ripped one apart in the workshop. <laughs> and, um, and at the time I was also working with the Australian government, um, looking at emerging technologies. So things like eye tracking software and eye tracking um, technologies, um, motion detection technology and how we could use those, how we could use the data. So this is going back quite a while. And um, while I was there, I did some really interesting projects that were, um, I guess, what you would describe as spatial um, experiential or things that um, that meant that physical and digital came together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really wanted to pursue this more. I really wanted to understand what would happen at the, the, the convergence between um, people and technology and how that was going to play out. So um, I went back to uni and I studied architecture and industrial design. Um, and from there, I, you know, had my own business. I did a whole bunch of things and then um, eventually landed at Fjord, which is um, a global design and innovation company that's part of Accenture. Um, and I got to do loads of crazy, amazing projects with them and travel all over the world. And and um, and and so began, a, a, I guess that was really the catalyst for for. I guess where I am now. Um, from there, I, I got to work in Hong Kong with Isobar, and then I moved to New York, where I am now with Idean. And and um, and over the past, you know, well, I guess all my career, you know, what I really do is I I really put people at the center of whatever it is that I'm trying to solve. Um, and so uh, it's it's certainly what people describe as human centered design. Or I actually like to take it one step further and look at humanity-centered design. So along with experience, thinking about the experience that people have and the memories that they have and so forth, I think about how I put the people at the center of what I do or um, alternatively, if I can, um, humanity at the center of what I do. So what does that mean? It means doing things that are going to or making things that are going to make people's lives genuinely better um, or, if it's possible, 
making things that are going to be better for humanity. Uh, and I would describe myself now as a transdisciplinary designer. Uh, I have three specializations, um, visual uh, which is visual design to me is a is a is a spectrum. So it's um, everything from illustration, typography, um, print design, graph what people would describe as graphic design, through to motion design, through to spatial design. So using things like CAD and three D rendering, through to um, VR, MR, AR, um, and moving into um, you know creating I guess what you would describe as alternate worlds. Um, and then I specialize in, um, ex- well, experiential or spatial, spatial design, let's say spatial. So um, uh, design for experience in spaces. And then the third one is the other one that most people would know me for, which is service design. Um, so very, very crudely the design of services. Um, <laughs> but it's a, lot more, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and then all of these things together, um, I umbrella um, under the term experience design. And coming back to the thing about um, why being a creative didn't quite work out for me, um, you know, creative, everybody's creative. And, um, and in, in the advertising and marketing world, um, you know, we, we, we call uh, art directors and writers, people who come up with ideas, if you like, um, uh, creatives and uh, and it's all about selling things to people and what I realized was that I was trying to solve problems for the people that we were selling for not sell things that people didn't need so what I was trying to do or what I wanted to do was get in and solve underlying problems with business models and try to understand what would actually be of value to the people that they're trying to sell to um, so that uh, that solving problems with purpose, that's what design is all about. And uh, it took me a long time to come to terms with that, but now I, I am um, very proud to be able to call myself a designer. Wow, that's uh, fantastic. It's great to I love I love to hear about the evolution of your your career and the different disciplines that you went down, obviously at the time that the field was continuing to evolve. I suppose the one big question that that I have for you is as we look at what you do in, in, in the experience design, and like you said, you can't create the experience, you can create the things to sort of elicit someone's experience. So it's 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 very abstract instead of if I create a, a phone, I, I touch it and I feel it and I hit a button and we all have roughly the same experience to a certain extent, caveat emptorum, not an expert. So there's probably the experienced designers and out there are rolling in the are groaning a bit but when you first sit down with a client on on a project and they've got a problem or they're or they're looking to seek your advice what sort of questions do you start to ask uh, as a part of that process and starting to put some constraints or put some walls on what can be such a abstract infinite concept of service how what's what are those early questions that early process look like well the first thing that usually happens with design is that someone or a group will come to me with a solution. So in general, and this is what has happened over the course of design in the past, in general, someone will say, I have a brief. I already know what I want. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's the client coming to you saying this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even even back in my early days of when you know when I was much younger, and someone would come and say, "I need a logo," and it's like, okay, well, why do you need a logo? Because you can't just even for even for logo design, which by by no means is a is a is a um, easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to start by asking why they want it in the first place. And I think that is certainly it's the theme for me um, that no matter what anybody comes to me asking for, it's very rare that they come with, I have a problem, Um, (laughs) which I wish that they would. (laughs) Um, But in general, it's um, they've already solutioned what they think the answer to the problem is. But oftentimes the problem that they're trying to solve isn't the right one. So the first thing that you need to try to figure out is the right problem to solve. Um, Far too often you get great answers to the wrong questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So from very early on when I started in my career through to to now – the very first question that I'll ask is why, and that in it can be met with a lot of <laughs> a lot of different types of response. Um, ultimately, I think that's part of my job is to to challenge. And honestly, I mean, I think that it's funny the way that I look. So you know, I I have tattoos, I have piercings. What I've found is that that in itself is usually a precursor to the challenge that I'm about to throw down to a client. So I walk in the room and they're already challenged by hmm. the way that I I appear, um, and that's a, that can be a good thing and a bad thing. But ultimately, um, hopefully, no one's surprised when I start questioning what they're doing. Um, you know, but but yeah, I guess to get to get to what you asked. Um, the the first the first thing I'm always asking myself is well why would you want to do that what what is the reason for that and allow people to explain what it is that they're trying to achieve and from there you can start to peel back the layers of what it is that they actually want mm-hmm. um, because sometimes uh, so it's so thinking about um, digital for example a lot of times you'll get people clients who come and say I want an app. And Everyone, everybody's got an app. I should have one too. Yeah. Well, like, but what I actually find, and I think that it comes from, um, you know, various design activities and watching the way that people um, uh, go through certain design activities, um, what they, th- the way that they manifest what they want is through what they know. Mm. So um, if you've got a problem and you're trying to figure out how to solve it. It's very easy to say, well, here's an app and it does all of these things. Yeah. Um, and this is how it's going to answer the problem that I have. And the I app's have. probably solved a problem for them so that their applicability to say, well, then we could build one to solve the problems that we think we're experiencing. But in actual fact, that, that um, manifestation of the way that they want to solve their problem might not be the best way to solve it. Uh, you know, it could be as simple as changing a few processes behind the scenes and suddenly you don't need to spend all that money on an app. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that that I'm really trying to get to the the bottom of with clients because, you know, in the perfect world, 
um, my ultimate goal would be that I don't come in and I say, we're going to make this. Um, I actually come in and say, we're going to take all these things away. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I love that idea that, and, and I, I've quite often a lot of time talk about um, when we look at our own lives and the questions we should be asking ourselves as well is why don't we do that now? And trying to understand what forces are maybe pushing back on that. And maybe it's not about adding more. And I use fitness as an example because it's something that I relate to. Instead of trying to add going to the gym and adding all these things on, well, what can we take away to maybe help us get there kind of thing. Um, I suppose for yourself, when, you, when you're when you sitting with a client and once you've sort of understood that, mm-hmm. um, what are the what are the, some of the questions and once you've sort of gone, okay, yes, there's a legitimacy as to the why. We've kind of nutted that out and we got that. What are some of the questions you start to ask after to start to create a bit more of a framework around what now you're trying to, to solve and how? Okay, so I don't necessarily... Well, the first thing that I try to do is I try to get to know people. So um, I'm trying to understand and I'm really – this is really giving away the secrets, right? <laughs> so, like, I tr- I really try to get to know – who. firstly, whoever it is that I'm directly dealing with. Um, I'm trying to understand what's important to them. And so there's any number of questions that you can ask in that space, but what does it actually mean that you need to do? It means that you need to spend a lot of time with these people. Oftentimes, um, certainly with design, and I'm sure it's the same with other with other with other roles. Um, you know, you sit down with someone for an hour or two, and then you go away for a week, and then you might get together for a half an hour. No, um, for me, I have to be with them all the time. I need to because because asking questions is great. But um, they can be leading and they can be biased and you can get weird answers and you don't always really see what's going on. Um, You can learn a lot by observing, just by watching people, uh, watching the way that they move, watching the way that they behave, watching what's important to them. Um, I'm always looking for clues. I'm looking for nonverbal cues around what is important to people Um, in an, in an environment that I'm designing for um, say it's an organization. I'm looking for behaviors. I'm looking for um, cues that go beyond anything that someone could tell me. Um, I'm trying to become part of the fabric of what's going on. So that's the first thing that I would do. Um, and I, I genuinely believe that um, to do that, you have to be there in person. Now, this is, this is a, core, um, a core part of human-centered design because the first thing that you do is you go out and you talk to the people that you're designing hmm. for. And it's not, it's, to me, it's not just about asking questions. It's about creating rapport. It's about them believing you and trusting you. Uh, actually, it's really funny. This morning I saw um, a post on LinkedIn um, by this guy that I know and, and he posted a photo of himself and he said, do you think that I'm too old to do – he told this story. Do you think I'm too old to do um, ethnographic research anymore? So basically field research where you go out and you you know spend a lot of time with the people that you're trying to understand. Because he'd gotten in a cab – and he had two clients in the back seat and the cab driver, the cab driver said, oh, are they your children? <laughs> and they were just two clients that were quite young. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they laughed and he laughed. But, and, and my answer was, 
Not at all, because I think that's a great cover. You know, being older, being younger, being tattooed, being pierced, being different. Uh, it's a great it's a great cover to help you go undercover mm. so that you can get to know people without them. In fact, I used to work with a, a researcher and she was British and she'd lived in Australia for years. But sometimes when she would go and do research to help build trust with the people that she was working with, she would tell them that she's just here on a working holiday and that she didn't know anything about Australia. And of course, like people love talking about themselves. People love the sound of their own voice. So if you can get someone talking, they will spill their guts. <laughs> and that's how you get the real juicy stuff. So to me, when I'm working with a client and I'm trying to figure out what the real problem is that I need to solve, I mean, it's not something that's going to come out in the first meeting. In fact, sometimes it can take months and months and months. And in fact, part of the way that I approach things is not to for me to come back to them and say, this is your problem. Uh, part of the way that I approach it is for them to have their own aha moment mm. where they make the realization for themselves. And um, the way that I would describe the, the approach that I take is I try to hold a mirror up to whoever it is that I'm, I'm, um, I'm working with. And that can be really uncomfortable to, ha I mean, nobody likes to, to have a mirror held up to themselves and pointing out all their flaws, but that's really, I think as a, as a design consultant, um, that's a big part of my job is to, is to bring an outside in perspective and um, not be afraid to tell people hard truths. Um, so that's not necessarily, I mean, it, there's part of it that's about asking questions, but of course part of it is my own detective work and trying to understand what's really going on in a place and then allowing them to make that realization for themselves. You know, it's a bit like when you have a friend who has like a really toxic boyfriend or girlfriend and no matter how much you tell them that that person is toxic for them and you want them to have a happy life and blah, blah, blah. It's only when they make the realization yeah. for themselves that they can actually do something about it. And that's, that's definitely my approach to that. Yeah. I, th I think that's, some, uh, I mean, for myself as well, it's been my own experience. I think we've all had that experience. We've all been having a conversation with somebody and we can tell them that, look, what they're doing or, or the situation they're in, boyfriend, girlfriend example is great, where you can tell it to them and you see it's kind of going in one ear and out the other. And it's, I think, until you start asking them questions, at least that they sort of come to that aha moment or you can start to unravel the thread and they, they hear it coming from themselves instead of, from somebody else, which is so, so easy to deflect. And I'm curious, you know, when you are, when you go about that process as well, and you're working with somebody and you get them to that moment, and you talked about the human centered design aspect, how do you go about trying to, if you do at all, I should say, get yourself into the shoes of the person you're designing it for? I mean, you and I, we have our own peculiarities and we have our own sort of socioeconomic demographical factors kind of thing. But as you look to design things outside of yourself, is there a process you go through to get into that mindset or to understand that particular person who might have that problem? Hey 
everyone, Justin here again from the Better Questions, Better Life podcast. I want to just take a quick moment and thank you very much for listening to today's episode. A quick note again that this is part one of uh, Cheer Lee's interview. So if you haven't already, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you can get the episode as soon as it comes out next week. Um, as always, a big thank you to all y- the Better Questions, Better Life podcast sponsor, YZ. Make sure you go check out all their stuff at yz.com. And uh, of course, you can always check out uh, a range more information related to the Better Questions, Better Life podcast, and that'll be at betterquestionsbetterlife.co. Of course, you can follow us on all the social medias and join in the conversation using the hashtag BQBL. With that being said, I look forward to speaking with you soon.